John Roebling. He was a German-born civil engineer. And as his career advanced, he found very quickly that his passion was in suspension bridges. And as he got more and more uh, experience and, and was building the, and producing the wire rope that was necessary in these massive bridges, each bridge got a little bit bigger and a little bit longer and a little bit more elaborate. Until finally, towards the end of his career, or what would be the end of his career, he dreamed up something big. He wanted and actually designed the bridge that would be known later as the Brooklyn Bridge. And this was going to be much longer than anything he'd done before. 1,600 feet almost across, which would have then been, and when it was built, it was the longest suspension bridge in the world. 127 feet off the water. And so he had this idea, this concept in his mind. He had the dream. He wanted to do it. And when he was out on this day measuring out the site where it was going to shoot across and connect, spanning the East River of New York, There was a little bit of an accident that took place. A tugboat somehow in docking and all the rest. I don't know if he was helping, trying to get it in place. But some way, somehow, his foot was crushed. And it was crushed so severely they had to amputate some of his toes. But they said, you need to stay here in the hospital and let us treat you. Or else this infection could be really bad. To which Roebling said, no, no, no. I have this. I'm fine. Let me just deal with this on my own. I'll I'll deal with it in my own way. I'll take care of my own medical care. And so he went home and he did exactly that. And he tried to flush it out with water repeatedly time and time again. But it wasn't long before he started showing some signs of his jaw locking up. A permanent smile coming across his face. Seizures started to develop. Then dementia. Yes, Roebling was getting tetanus. And within 24 days of the accident, John Roebling died in 1867, never to see his dream realized. It took three more years to get everything in place. It was actually his son that oversaw the project. And 16 years after his death, the bridge became a reality. But I think of this accident and this attitude. John, let us help you. Let us treat you. Let us make sure we can do everything in our power to keep this from getting infected. No, no, no. I'll be just fine. Thanks, but no thanks. I think of that expression. You can lead a horse to water. You know how it ends. But you can't make them drink. What would have been the outcome? We don't know. Maybe he would have made it. Maybe he would have survived. But he refused help. And today, as we continue in this series, Paul, a man of grace and grit, we see a very sad piece of history of God's people. When Paul goes again to Jerusalem, as we're about to read, and virtually the response is, thanks, but no thanks. We're just fine. And in fact, they get more aggressive than that. And so I've titled... This is number 20 now. We've been at this a while. We're getting close to the end. Uh, Paul has wrapped up all three of his missionary journeys. He's on his way back to the familiar city of Jerusalem where he was brought up. The city where he worked and served as a Pharisee. Probably felt as much, if not more like home, than Tarsus. 
But in today's piece, even the strongest leaders cry. What does that mean? Even the strongest leaders cry. I hope you have your Bibles. We have a lot of verses to get through this morning. Largely as we piece this story together to try and put together the context of the tears of Paul. And so we're picking up our Bibles and turning to Acts chapter 21. We have a lot of verses. I don't want you to get lost in the verses, so every now and again I'm going to change this slide so you'll have some idea where is this guy. It can be a little bit uh, frustrating when they just keep going on and you can't find where they are. So we're in Acts chapter 21, beginning verse 17. And there we read, And when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren received us gladly. So they received Paul gladly. And who is they? Well, it mentions James later, who we know to be the presiding elder or head elder, also the brother of Jesus and leading or leader in the church council in Acts chapter 15. We went over that some time ago, over the requirements of the Gentiles. And so it's not just James, but it's all the elders of the church in Jerusalem. These are the believers of Jesus. They are the Jews that accept Jesus' sacrifice. So it says, and when we, that's the we, when we had come to Jerusalem, the brethren, that's the brethren, I, I confused you there, the brethren I just mentioned received us, that's Paul and the, who, those who were traveling with him, gladly. And on the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. And when he had greeted them, he told in detail those things which God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. What are some of the things that Paul may have mentioned in detail? What are the revivals that he may have mentioned? The burning of the magic books, perhaps. The, the going up on Areopagus uh, or, or any other small group Bible study that he had that turned into a small group and company and eventually a church with leadership. And he tells them in detail, story after story, detail after detail. And it says in verse 20, when they heard it, that's the brethren, they glorified the Lord. Praise the Lord for what he's doing in all of these places. And when he says these places, it's really talking about the Gentiles, where Paul has been ministering, these heathens, if you will, and how they're coming to the Lord. Then continuing on here, the second part of verse 20, it says, And they said to him, You see, brother, how many myriads, or we could say literally thousands of Jews there are, who have believed, and they are all zealous for the law. Now we're talking about not Gentiles, but Jews, thousands of them, but they're still zealous for the law. Verse 21, but they have been informed about you, Paul, that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, saying that they not ought to circumcise their children, nor walk according to the customs. What then? The assembly must certainly meet, for they will hear that you have come. And so they are zealous for the law. They have not been fully liberated from the Jewish ceremonies, the customs, the rituals that God gave, but ultimately Jesus fulfilled. But this has been so ingrained, they can't let it go. And so they're zealous for the law, and they keep being informed. Obviously, they're zealous for spreading exaggerated and damaging reports about Paul, that Paul is teaching forsake Moses. 
Now, friends, there was no more serious charge that could be laid before Jews. Forsake Moses? What? The law of Moses? Oh, oh, oh. This is a, the pillar. This is the foundation. I can't believe Paul. He must be off of his rocker. And so Paul is giving this report. Praise the Lord. But Paul, you need to know. There's thousands of Jews here. They're still zealous for the law. And they hear that you're disregarding the law entirely. But then they have a plan. Verse 23. Therefore, do what we, the brethren, tell you, Paul. We have four men who have taken a vow. Take them and be purified with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads and that all may know that those things of which they were informed concerning you, Paul, are nothing, but that you yourself also walk orderly and keep the law. This plan is yet another example that they still hold to the Jewish ceremony. And they're saying, Paul, if this is not the case, if this is not true, that you have just done away with all the laws of Moses and so on, then you need to prove it. And how will you prove it? Here's our plan. Do what we tell you, Paul. We have these four gentlemen. They're partway through all these ceremonial washings and cleansing and so on. You go join them. In fact, you pay for them to finish. And they have to pay for all different things, the sacrifice and the the washings and the different things that are, are done. And so Paul is given this opportunity. Are you this heretic, or are you still one of us? Now let me ask, did Paul have to do this? No. The ceremonies were no longer something that the people had to do or to keep. God had fulfilled those, or Jesus, I should say, more specifically, had fulfilled those. But in Paul's attempt to appease them and not be a stumbling block, We'll see here that he goes along with it. Interestingly, Acts of the Apostles 405 says this. He, Paul, felt that if by any reasonable concession he could win them to the truth, he would remove a great obstacle to the success of the gospel in other places. That's what Paul felt. That's what was motivating his decision. If I can do this to keep from from having this big barrier and this big obstacle, if they'll start listening to my testimony if I do this thing, it's no big deal, whatever, it doesn't matter. Yes, it's been fulfilled, but if this is a big thing for them, fine. That's what he felt. But we have to keep reading here. It says, on the pen of inspiration, but he, Paul, was not authorized of God to concede as much as they asked. Wasn't authorized of God. Another way to put it, this was not according to God's plan. This is not what God wanted Paul to do. Pretty hard to stand up against the brethren, though. Thousands of Jews. Have you ever been maligned? Been part of a vicious, uh, I don't know, backbiting or or gossip scandal? and, And Pastor Wright, we've heard that you're doing this and you're involved in that. It's very troubling to us. But we have a plan, says the brethren. If you will do this, if you will prove your faithfulness, then we'll believe you. How tempting to just jump in and say, okay, let's do it. Let's clear my name. Let's go forward. But he was not authorized of God to concede. I don't imagine, we don't show any sign or indication here that Paul asks God. That that he makes it a matter of prayer. And so he gives in. We keep reading. Verse 26. Then Paul took the men, these are the four men, going through the purification rites, 
and the next day, having been purified with them, entered the temple to announce the expiration of the days of purification, at which time an offering should be made for each one of them. Verse 27, now when the seven days were almost ended, the Jews from Asia. Now Asia is where Paul has been spending much of his time. Asia is where Paul has been on his missionary journeys. Asia is where they've tried to kill Paul on multiple occasions. And so here we have Jews from Asia seeing Paul in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on Paul, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who teaches all men everywhere against the people, the law, and this place, this sacred temple. And furthermore, he also brought Greeks into this temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the uh, Ephesian, with him in the city, whom they supposed that Paul had brought into the temple. So they see Paul. They already don't like Paul. Maybe he's had something over his head or something. He's in the crowds. He's not really standing out. He's going through these rites. But towards the end, these Jews from Asia, they spot, I know that face. That's Paul. And they make this big to-do. And in order to get the crowds all excited and heightened yet again, they spread more slander. There was this Gentile. I saw him with him in the city. He must have brought him to the temple. Well, did you see him in the temple? Don't confuse the story with the facts. And so everybody's in an uproar. Spirit of prophecy says they cry out, Men of Israel, help, verse 28, with the fury of demons. And what they charge in verse 29, Spirit of prophecy affirms it's wholly false. But they supposed, and that's all that they needed. So continuing on here, verse 32. Oh, somehow we skipped 30. Let's pick up there. And all the city was disturbed, and the people ran together, seized Paul, and dragged him out of the temple. And immediately the doors were shut. And now as they were seeking to kill him, how do you seek to kill somebody? Perhaps with stones. You don't want to have blood on your hands in the temple. But we'll beat him with things, we'll throw, him, throw things at him, we'll try and incite the crowd to do our dirty work, whatever it takes. But this man deserves to die. And so while they're seeking to kill him, this has created such an uproar. News came to the commander in verse 31 of the garrison that all Jerusalem was in an uproar. And he immediately took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the commander and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. We don't get a description of what Paul looks like at this point. But it doesn't take long for a mob to do some serious damage. We have to get some significant hits in just in case he's going to try and fight back. And then once he's down, we can ease off a little bit and finish the job. And so I imagine Paul is bruised and battered. There's blood probably coming off of his lip. His, his eye has been smacked. Maybe he's got some, some major scrubs on his arms and his legs from being down on the ground and holding over his head. I don't know what he looks like, but he doesn't look good. And we pick up where we left off. Where do we leave off? And they stopped beating Paul, verse 32, verse 33. Then the commander came near and took him and commanded him to be bound with two chains. And he asked he who was, who he was and what he had done. And some among the multitude cried one thing and some another. So when he could not ascertain the truth because of the tumult, he commanded him to be taken into the barracks. Didn't say he reached the barracks, but he's commanded to be taken to the barracks. And when he reached the stairs, he had to be carried by the soldiers because of the violence of 
the mob. Boy, that puts in a mental picture. Here we have soldiers. Here we have all kinds of people there. And they have to physically carry Paul because the mob is so animalistic. They're clawing at Paul to put him to death. Granted, this is, dare we say, a church function. We're trying to have church. We're trying to honor God. We're trying to be holy. We're trying to pray. We're trying to offer sacrifices. And we're trying to kill Paul before the Romans take him away at whatever the cost. Verse 36, for the multitude of the people followed after crying out, away with him. Then verse 37, when then as Paul was about to be led into the barracks, he said to the commander, may I speak to you? He replied, can you speak Greek? Are you not the Egyptian who some time ago stirred up a rebellion and led the 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness? He's scratching his head. He's saying, now wait a second. I had just assumed a lot of assumptions in these stories. I had just assumed you were that Egyptian with those 4,000 assassins out into the wilderness and here you'd come back again. And that's why I brought this whole garrison down because it was just going to become this big brouhaha. That's not you. But Paul said, verse 39, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no mean city. And I implore you, permit me to speak to the people. So when he had given permission, Paul stood on the stairs and motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was great silence, he spoke to them in the Hebrew language. And we've read through many, much of this before. A lot of this is the story that gives us more details of Paul's own conversion there in Acts chapter 9. And so we've been through this. But he says in verse 3, I'm indeed a Jew born in Tarsus of Cilicia, brought up in this city at the feet of Gamaliel, taught according to the strictness of our father's law. And I was zealous towards God as you all are today. All right, we're listening. I persecuted this way to the death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. So also the high priest bears me witness and all the counsel of the elders for whom I received letters to the brethren and went to Damascus 140 miles away, a week on foot to bring in chains even those who were there in Jerusalem to be punished. Okay, we're still listening. And then in verse 6, he says, It happened as I came near Damascus at about noon. Suddenly a great light from heaven shone around me. I fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to me, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? So I answered, Who are you, Lord? And he said to me, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom you are persecuting. And those who were with me in, in Indeed, saw the light and were afraid, but they did not hear the voice of him who spoke to me. Verse 10, so I said, what shall I do, Lord? And the Lord said to me, arise and go to Damascus, and there you will be told all the things which are appointed for you to do. And then he goes on and tells about how he was blinded, how he had to wait until Ananias came. And then finally Ananias comes. And in verse 14, he says, the God of our fathers has chosen you that you should know his will and see the just one and hear the voice of his mouth. For you will be his witness to all men of what you have seen and heard. And now why are you waiting? Arise and be baptized and wash away your sins, calling on the name of the Lord. The crowd's still listening. They're still tracking. Verse 17. Now it happened when I returned to Jerusalem, I was praying in the temple. That I was in a trance. And saw him saying to me, make haste, get out of the Jerusalem quickly, for they will not receive your testimony concerning me. So I said, Lord, 
They know that in every synagogue I imprisoned and beat those who believed on you. And when the blood of your martyr Stephen was shed, I also was standing by consenting to his death and guarding the clothes of those who were killing him. Then he said to me, Depart, for I will send you, Paul, far from here on three missionary journeys. To whom? The Gentiles. Not God's chosen people. To God's unchosen people that are now chosen. To the Gentiles. And that's when the crowd went crazy. We're in verse 22 of chapter 22. And they listened to him until this word. What word do you suppose it was? Gentiles. The G word. We don't want to say it, but he said it. He shouldn't have. And they raised their voices and said, Away with such a fellow from the earth, for he is not fit to live. Then as they cried out and tore off their clothes and threw dust into the air, the commander ordered him to be brought into the barracks and said that he should be examined under scourging. So you might know why they shouted so against him. He's confused. What's the big deal? Why are they so irate? And so they bound him, verse 25, with thongs. And Paul said to the centurion who stood by, Is it lawful for you to scourge a man who's a Roman and uncondemned? You have to remember, Paul knew the law backwards and forwards, inside and out. He's not just some peasant, uneducated individual. In verse 26, when the centurion heard that, he went and told the commander, saying, Take care what you do, for this man is a Roman. Then the commander came and said to him, Tell me, are you a Roman? He said, Yes. And the commander answered, With large sum I obtained this citizenship. And Paul said, But I was born a citizen. Then immediately those who were about to examine him withdrew from him. And the commander was also afraid after he found out that he was a Roman. And because he had bound him. Quite a day, wouldn't you say? And then there's some solitude. There's some quiet as Paul sits in the barracks, wondering what's going to come next. And then verse 30. The next day, because he wanted to know for certain why he was accused by the Jews, this is the commander now, he released him, Paul, from his bonds and commanded the chief priests and all their council to appear and brought Paul down and set him before them. The apostle was now to be tried by the same tribunal of which he himself had been a member before his conversion. He knows this room well, except last time he was in it, he was on the other side, watching as they examined 
these people that didn't deserve to live. And this time, instead of being on the perimeter, Paul now stood in the very same spot that Stephen stood years before. Now Paul was the focus of the assembly. Continuing in chapter 23, verse 1. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I've lived in all good conscience before God until this day. Another way he could have said it is, I haven't done anything wrong. My conscience is clear. And notice the response, verse 2. And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. And then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall. For you sit to judge me according to the law, and, you do, and do you command me to be struck contrary to the law? Was this a flash of Paul's humanness here, as he pushes back a little bit, calling the high priest a whitewashed wall? You know, there's only one other place in the New Testament where this term whitewash is used. And the, next, the other time, it's in Matthew 23, verse 27, and it's on the lips of Jesus himself and it's to the exact same group the scribes and the pharisees and why does jesus use this term because they're being hypocrites this is part of jesus last sermon delivered in jerusalem on tuesday of his final week they look good on the outside these whitewashed tombs But inside, they were full of dead man's bones and all kinds of uncleanliness. No, this was the same phrasing. This was the same application to the same group that Jesus himself had used. And oh, how true it was. And that's exactly what Paul is saying here. With all due respect, you're a bunch of hypocrites. Now, beating was permitted by Jewish law, but only after right judicial procedure resulting in the conviction of the accused had taken place. As a former member of the Sanhedrin, Paul knew the law. He knew proper judicial protocol. And so he's asserting his right to due process, and he catches them in the act of their own hypocrisy. God will deal with you. Some scholars feel that Paul was speaking with inspiration when just seven or eight years later, Ananias was assassinated. Is that the case? I don't know. Verse 4, And those who stood by said, Do you revile God's high priest? And then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest. For it is written, You shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. But when Paul perceived that the part 
were Sadducees and the other Pharisees. He cried out in the council, Men and brethren, I am a Pharisee, the son of a Pharisee. Concerning the hope and resurrection of the dead, I am being judged. And when he had said this, a dissension arose between the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The same old argument about the resurrection and the state of the dead and all these things. And so they start going back and forth at each other. Verse 10 tells us, Now when there arose a great dissension, the commander, this poor commander, fearing lest Paul might be pulled to pieces by them, commanded the soldiers to go down and take him by force from among them and bring him back into the barracks. This time, we're not in church. This time, it's an elders meeting. The who's who. We're all here to find out what needs to be done with Paul. And in the midst of it all, they don't follow proper protocol. They strike Paul on the mouth. They get tangled up in the old arguments and the old discussions. And then again, the commander has to intervene lest Paul might be pulled to pieces. Friends, this is a sad commentary, isn't it? Now, we already know with the stoning of Stephen... That God said, my message will go to the Gentiles. So we could already say, this is no longer God's church, I suppose. This is no longer God's chosen. But still, these are his kids. These are people that he died for. These are people that even those around in Jerusalem are still looking up to. Yet this is how they are handling and conducting themselves. And so now in this quiet of his prison cell, reflecting back on the trying experience of the last two days, I imagine Paul began to question how it all went down. Replaying the highlights in his mind, the statements that were made, how he responded. Did I do things right? Did I respond in the right way? Was this all according to God's plan? Or did I somehow insert my own direction into this whole thing? Things were happening fast. Acts the Apostles, beginning in 4.12, says this, While reflecting on the trying experiences of the day, Paul began to fear. Paul, fear? Paul began to fear that his course might not have been pleasing To God. Had his great desire to be in union with his brethren led to this disastrous result? The position which the Jews, as God's professed people, occupied before an unbelieving world caused the apostle intense anguish of spirit. How would those heathen officers look upon them? What kind of a witness is this to all the the, the commanders, all the Roman officials claiming to be worshipers of Jehovah and assuming sacred office, yet giving themselves up to control of blind, to the control of blind, unreasoning anger, seeking to destroy even their brethren who dared to differ with them in religious faith and turning their most solemn, deliberative counsel, 
the high court or supreme court, if you will, into a scene of strife and wild confusion. How is this a positive witness for God? And so Paul felt that the name of his God had suffered reproach in the eyes of the heathen. He's not fearing himself. He's not fearing his future. He's fearing the very name and character of God. Continuing in this long quote, and now he was in prison and he knew that his enemies in their desperate malice would resort to any means to put him to death. Could it be that his work for the churches was ended and that ravening wolves were to enter in now? The cause of Christ was very near to Paul's heart. And with deep anxiety, there it is again, the word anxiety, he thought of the perils of the scattered churches, exposed as they were to the persecutions of just such men as he had encountered in the Sanhedrin Council. What is to become of these churches, these small groups, these Bible studies that are happening among the Gentiles? All the details I just related, and they said, very good. And now this group here, the Sanhedrin, Are they going to be able to survive against this malicious, violent backlash? And so it says, in distress and discouragement, he, Paul, wept and prayed. So again, I ask you, why did Paul weep? Well, it says right here, he was distressed and discouraged. But why? Because of his physical pain and suffering? Because he wasn't prepared to die? No, not at all, friends. He was prepared to come to Jerusalem. In fact, we can read it in Acts 21, verse 13. They're begging him not to go. And Paul responds, I am ready not only to be bound but also to die at Jerusalem for the name, for the character, for the reputation, if you will, of the Lord Jesus. So Paul wasn't weeping for himself. Paul was weeping for the work of the church. He was ready to die. He was weeping because of their pride, their arrogance, the conceit, the bigotry. And while they held church positions, they were controlled by the prince of darkness. And you could say and just write off the whole lot and say there's no hope for them. But I imagine Paul would argue, how can you say that? I once was one of them. I thought if anybody could convince them, I could convince them with my testimony. But in distress and discouragement, I imagine he just cries as this is not how he anticipated that it would go at all. And Paul was perhaps weeping for fear that his testimony had zero impact for the gospel. As he feared for the church. You know, I can't help but think of another person who wept for the same group. Jesus, too, faced the prejudice and hatred of the Sadducees and the Pharisees. Matthew chapter 23, verse 13, he says, But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! 
for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men. But he didn't say it in anger. Not with a voice raised, not in irritation, but in pity. In calmness, in love, in holy and righteous indignation. And why did Jesus say all of this? Because it was his last chance to tell everybody off? No. To put them in their place? No. But because Jesus desperately longed for them to wake up from their hopeless condition. And how do we know this? Because after this discourse of all of these woes, Perhaps the strongest language we get on the lips of Jesus over and over again. After all of this discourse, pen of inspiration says, Divine pity marked the countenance of the Son of God as he cast one lingering look upon the temple and then upon his hearers and in a voice choked by deep anguish of heart and bitter tears, he, Jesus Christ, exclaimed, this verse, 23, verse 37, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophet and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings. I wanted to provide for you. I wanted to protect you. I wanted to mother you, if you will. But then I imagine it's the choke. As the divine Son of God says, But you weren't willing. You weren't willing. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how can I give thee up? My people who I've labored with, my children who I've given every advantage, every evidence through prophets and prophecy, through written word, through preaching and testimony, through song and life experiences. For three and a half years, Jesus' message for them was the same as it is for us today, here and now in 2020. We can read about it in Revelation chapter 3, verse 17. I, you say, I am rich, have become wealthy, I have need of nothing. But could it be that Jesus is weeping over these very words for you and for me because we do not know that we are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. But we're blinded to the fact we're rich, we're wealthy, we're in need of nothing. Everything looks good on the outside. And Jesus says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire that you may be rich and white garments that you may be clothed that the shame of your nakedness may not be revealed. And to anoint your eyes with eye salve, that you may see clearly. Jesus doesn't want to shame them. Jesus doesn't want to shame us. He wants to help us. As many as I love, I rebuke and chasten. Therefore, be zealous and repent. You know, if we truly love those around us, and we see them going on a destructive path. The heart of love says, none of my business. 
I'm not going to get involved. That's their choice. Is that truly the heart of love? Or does the heart of love cry out and even rebuke and chasten? Don't do that. Don't go there. Stop. There's danger waiting for you. Please no. But Jesus is a gentleman. Behold, I stand at the door and I knock. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and dine with him and he with me. But I'm not going to barge in. I'm going to knock. Just loud enough for you to know that I'm there. Will you let him in? Tim overcomes, I will grant to sit with me on my throne as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Why did Jesus weep in Matthew 23? Why might Jesus weep for us today? Why did Paul weep? Perhaps because we think we're rich. When the reality is we're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. And he calls us by name. And instead of Jerusalem, Jerusalem, he says, John, John, Samantha, Samantha, whatever your name is, David, David, how can I give you up? Like he said for Peter, Peter, I have prayed for you. The devil wants to sift you, but I have prayed for you. Think about that. The, the, the son of, of the God of the universe praying for you and for me, weeping over our spiritual condition. And he's weeping because we're focused on ourselves. Because all we seem to want is a life of ease. We want the picket fence. We want all the niceties. We want a, a nice vacation. We want enough money to be comfortable something nice to drive around, and we just want to be a, you know, a life of ease. And we can't seem to find time for Bible study and prayer. In the midst of a pandemic, when we're not supposed to go out, when life for many has been put on pause, well, I still can't really be bothered. Maybe I should renew that Netflix membership. And everything looks good on the outside, The family looks picture perfect. But on the inside is emptiness and fear, pride, conceit, darkness in every form. And Jesus cries for us as he prays for us over those who are blind to their true heart condition. You know, when Jesus was in Gethsemane, he prayed for you and for I. John 17, 20 and 24, he said, I do not pray for those alone, speaking of the disciples, but also for those who will believe in me. That's us. Through there, the disciples' word. That they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. What a thought. The God of the universe again moved to tears for me. 
And all he desires is our willingness to open the door and let him in. He'll gather us up like a hen gathers her chicks. We just have to be willing. And that willingness, to be willing, that is essential. At a time when the government is telling you what is and is not essential, I, your preacher, am telling you your willingness is essential. And Jesus is praying that we too will see what is essential in this time. That he is, in fact, the way, the truth, and the life. And that no one comes to the Father except through him. That sounds pretty essential to me. And friends, it's the easiest thing in the world to do. And at the same time, it's the hardest thing in the world to do. To give him your will. To humble yourself before him. And he's standing at the door this morning. And he's knocking. Will you let him in? And ask him to change you into his likeness and his image. He will. He longs to. But maybe he's still waiting outside. Buy from me that you may be rich. That your nakedness might be clothed in white robes. That you may have eye salve and see, truly see. And sadly, many of those in the Jewish establishment perished in their blindness. May that not be said of us. May we not allow the devil to blind us. May we not grow numb to everything happening around us. Oh, this virus will pass. Everything will be just fine. Or is this a wake-up call? The time is short. It's time to get our life in order. It's time to get our house in order. It's time to get our witness in order. And I would submit it's not just Paul. It's not just Jesus weeping and praying, but it's pastors, it's mothers, it's grandmothers, it's fathers, it's grandfathers, it's spouses, it's wives, it's husbands praying for their spouse, praying for their kids, their grandkids, praying for their wayward child who thinks they're fine but needs to make a decision for Christ. And I can't help but think right now, on this live stream, there's a wife praying for her husband sitting next to her that has never made a formal decision. You've been coming, perhaps for years, You've been part of this church. You've been involved in things. People know you by name, but you've never made the decision. What are you waiting for? Make it right now. I'm thinking of the spouse, the wife perhaps, who is overhearing this, trying to drown out my nasally voice. I've listened to myself on recordings, I'm sorry. And your husband, they're involved in the church. They love the church. They're always at the church. And you're a little bit bitter that they're always at the church. But what about you? Sister, when is it your time to make a stand, to make a decision for Jesus Christ? What are you waiting for? For the grandson, for the granddaughter. It is my parents saying, my grandparents saying, it's not my thing. Why not? Well, it's not cool. It's not accepted. I'll come to Jesus later after I have all my fun. Do you really want to go through all that baggage? All that garbage? 
to carry that into your future relationship with your spouse, to carry that into your future life, to have those habits and those addictions, to have the guilt? Do you really want all of that? Or do you want to say, you know what, there might be something here. And maybe I need to pay attention. Maybe now is the time. What are you waiting for? Maybe it's the elder in the church. You look good on the outside. You know how to say happy Sabbath. You know how to say the right things. But in your heart, there's real animosity to others in the church. You think of others and you just immediately get angry. Your blood pressure goes up. And deep down there's an anger towards your wife, towards your kids. And it lashes out at times. And you can hide it and you can put on the mask. But other times it just comes out in full force and full fury. I'm not here to shame you. I'm not here to condemn you. I'm telling you though, this is the time to wake up. And that person might be saying, I don't know what the problem is. I don't know what to do. I'm just not feeling connected. Friends, it's very simple. Place your will on the side of Jesus Christ. Say, I'm going to spend a thoughtful hour every day in my Bible, in the spirit of prophecy, and in prayer. And I'm going to say, Lord, reveal yourself to me. My hunch is, if you're filled with all that anxiety, it's because those spiritual disciplines have slipped Friends, don't let that happen. Don't let that happen. Jesus is knocking at our heart's door this morning. We'll pick up Paul next time. But God is not done with him yet. But just to give you some hope of Paul's situation, verse 37 of chapter... Nope, sorry, wrong place. Verse 11 of chapter 23 says, but the following night, the Lord stood by him and said to Paul, be of good cheer, Paul, for as you have testified of me in Jerusalem, so you must also bear witness at Rome. Sitting there in a dungeon, unknown about his future, discouraged about the church, and the Lord says, I'm going to go down to my servant Paul. I'm going to encourage Paul. And just simply say, chin up, Paul. Be of good courage. You've testified of me. And I'm not done with you yet. How's this going to work? How am I going to get to Rome? How am I going to get out of this prison cell? I imagine Paul's not so worried about that. God said it. He believes it. His life has been in his hands all the way through. People have tried to kill him all the way through. But God does some of his best works when we feel like we're pushed in the corner. And so we'll pick up as we continue on with Paul. But in today's peace, I challenge you to be touched. I pray that the Holy Spirit will touch your hearts by the tears wept by Paul for us. By the tears cried by Jesus for you and me. And by the meaning behind the tears, Lord God, help them to wake up. Wake up, wake up, wake up. I don't want them to be destroyed. I don't want them to come to destruction. I don't want them to be ignorant or naive. I don't want them to be lost. 
And so if the Holy Spirit is speaking to your heart, I just invite you to raise your hand wherever you are. In your living room, in your kitchen, your dining room, your bedroom. Wherever you are, just raise your hand. Jesus sees. And by raising your hand, you're saying, God, I hear you knocking. And I want to open the door and let you in. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, you see the hands that are raised. Each hand signifies something a little bit different. But the God who searches and knows our hearts knows exactly the commitment that's being made. Some to speak and reach out to their pastor for Bible studies. Some to seek after baptism and officially joining this church. Some to make a very simple turn and about face from the direction they were going. From the plans they may even have tonight. And say, Lord, I want to follow your path, your ways. Live according to your word. And Lord, there could be a host of things it means in between, but you see the hands that are raised. Bless each individual, bless each decision, and draw each of us under your wings of protection, of love, of caring, and of concern. And may you continue to pray for us as we are drawn by the power of the Holy Spirit. And may we leave this place, turn off this program, change, feeling that something has happened, some transaction has been made where we have decided to put our will on the side of Jesus Christ. And as a result, we have a peace that we've never known before. As we have been fighting and kicking against the goads. And we're tired of fighting. And we submit to you, we surrender to you, And may you give us your peace, your assurance that you are with us, that you will never leave us or forsake us, and that you will guide us every step of the way, is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.